The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. Sorry, I had a couple technical button difficulties there to turn on my microphone. So a little extra intro music today. Um, Hopefully you'll forgive me. So Q&A show today, we've got a slew of questions uh, lined up from Jim. I think this is the the first Q&A show of 2024 that we're recording here. Um, Not that things are changing a lot from 2023. Still taking your questions and doing our best to answer them on the show here. Um, We've got a bit of a time limit. Not too bad. Not too bad. It's not going to be an extra short show by any means, but we can't do one of the uh, Excel shows. Um, So I'll bring Jim in sooner than later. You may as well dive in now because I don't have a heck of a lot more to say as an intro. Um, (laughs) So So you're dying this morning as you're recording. Is that what you're saying? I'm dying? No. Dying in the sense of, of you're trying to come on and, and perform and talk and intro and you just, you got nothing. Oh, I don't have anything real interesting enough to uh, tap dance anymore. So uh, maybe you have something far more interesting to say. I don't know. Hopefully. I never have anything interesting to say. Oh, okay. Um, just sitting here enjoying the first week of 2024, folks. Hopefully your new year's off to a good start. We shall see. Um but yeah, nothing overly special to report, except it's. I did see that it was one of the warmest and driest Decembers on record in Colorado, so that was interesting. I still think we're going to have, as a gardener, a terrible, terrible spring and summer for gardening. I have a feeling it's going to get hot very it's a little early, early to, and stay dry. It's a little early to say that, I think. Well... If December was anything to go by, um, it's not looking good as a gardener. <clears throat> All righty. We're going to have a sandwich today, Chris. We're going sandwich. to do a, not quite sure if we would call it a Social Security sandwich or an Irma sandwich. We have two Irma questions and one Social Security question. So I'm going to go Irma, Social Security, Irma. 
Well, that's, so would that I'd be call a that Irma a, sandwich or a Social Security sandwich? No, that's a Social Security sandwich with Irma bread. That's okay. what that is. That would that's be what I would call it. Because we don't call it a bread sandwich when we have two pieces of bread. Just because the, maybe the, the dominant ingredient is, in fact, the bread. We don't call it a bread sandwich. It's sandwich is what, you know, the bread makes it a sandwich. So it would be redundant to call it a bread sandwich. So I'm, I'm, I'm all aboard on the Social Security sandwich. <laughs> Alrighty, so folks, we're going to do a Social Security sandwich to start off 2024. Irma question, income-related monthly adjusted amount for those, or I might have had the acronym wrong. Chris will cue is in a way. Pretty close. It's adjustment amount, technically. Oh, okay. Adjustment amount. It's essentially a surtax on your Medicare premiums. So if you're new listening and you're wondering what the hell are these guys talking about with Irma, that's what Irma is. So we're going to lead it with an Irma question, then a Social Security question, then an Irma question. All right. No hint from this person. So we're starting off 2024 as a flop. No hint. Well, I think it's a little – is it a recent question with no hint? Or sometimes you pull out old questions and July there's a reason. July 3rd of 2023. I think oh, we were well we're into true. state hints. Yeah. I believe in July yeah. we were. True. But maybe we weren't. I can't okay. remember. It's all a blur. Um and I got nothing on this state. I don't think I could. Well, all right. Here's a really easy hint. If you screw this up, mm. this state has a really big hole. A big hole? Hole. Hole. You know, hole? Uh, New Mexico? Now, why would the hell would New Mexico have a really big hole? Well, I thought that what was where that. What hole do you think of? I think hole there's in that, New Mexico? You no, know there's that really big. place that you go scuba diving. It's called the Blue Hole or something like that. And what? Yeah, you go. It's a big hole with water, and you like it's a natural cavern, but it's vertical, and it's like, like I think they call it the blue hole or big hole or something like that. No, no this hole is even bigger. I, I sh- I'm sure. Is it listeners filled with are screaming anything? at their their podcast device right now? Is, the answer is it filled Arizona with, with the Great Depression? Not the Great Depression. They've got a. I the Grand call Canyon. The canyon. What the hell is the Great Depression got to do with Arizona? I don't know. The Grand Canyon. I wouldn't call That's that a, a big hole. hole. It's more like a crack. It's a hole. It's okay. a hole in the ground, and it's big. Okay. All right. This gentleman is from Arizona. It begins, why doesn't Medicare true up your IRMA penalties on your tax return? Mm-hmm. I understand the need for the two-year look back to determine what to charge throughout the year, but it seems like you could true that up like you do other charges, when you prepare your tax return and definitively know your income for the year. Mm. Thus, the resulting IRMA penalty based on that year's actual income. Mm. So in other words, I'm thinking what he's asking is, why can't you just report the IRMA penalty on your tax return, make it part of your tax return calculation, Mm -hmm. and just pay it then? I think that's what he's asking, but I'm not sure. Kind of, or I think I I, I heard it as you're going to be charged the IRMA based on their estimate from your two years ago modified adjusted gross income, but then let's actually use your current year to true it up. And Well, if I can... I mean, I'm not, I'm thinking more in the line of the ACA, which I've been on for a while for my health care. And of course, my earnings are too high. I don't get anything. But Uh years ago, I did. They do treat it up like that. I did, right. I would pay the full premium. I never 
tried to predict my income. Yeah. But I knew you could. You could tell them what you thought your income for the year would be. And you could tell them it's going to be wicked low. Mm -hmm. And you would pay very little on yep. your premiums. I didn't do it that way, but you could have. Right. And then when you do your tax return and you put your real income in right on mm -hmm. the the tax return, you may end up owing money. Yep. Instead, I would pay the full amount. And if my earnings, because a self-employed person, especially when my business was much, much, much smaller, I never knew every year what the hell I was going to make at yeah. the end of the year. And sometimes I'd get a nice refund. Sometimes I wouldn't. It was kind of trued up that way. So that's how I kind of interpreted what mm -hmm. his question was. Yeah. No, I totally get it that it, they, and when he says, why doesn't Medicare do this? It's simply the answer is because they don't. That's not how it was written into the law. Um, they could. They could, I mean, the proof is exactly the example you gave, which is they do it that way with the ACA premium credits. Uh, there, it's more of a clawback of credits kind of a situation or giving you more credits if you deserve them, but they're, quote, truing them up every year in real time, whereas the IRMA, the Medicare premium surcharges, are by default based on your adjusted gross income, your modified adjusted gross income, technically, from two tax years prior. Um, he's saying, you know, let that be how the year starts, but then at the end of the year, uh, well, into the next year, when you file your tax return, why don't they true them up for real time so there's not this funky delay? Um, it's just because they don't. They could. I, 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 you'd have to ask Congress why they don't do it the way he's proposing, because they could if it was if the law was written that way. The only time that this kind of does happen is if you had requested relief via the SSA 44, let's say you had a life-changing event like retirement or something like that, and you uh, asked them to use a current year for IRMA rather than two years prior because of the life-changing event and this current year was going to have noticeably lower income, they will grant you that, but then they will true it up, not on your tax return. They will wait until you file your tax return, look at it, true it up on their end, and then send you a bill, basically, and tell you, uh, you know, this was this was wrong. You, you earned more uh, than you told us. Kind of that same idea with the ACA, but just not all done on your tax return. It's just the way the law was written to handle IRMA, the, the functioning of it, the mechanics of IRMA, uh, determining it and charging it to you are different, a different mechanism than the uh, mechanics of the ACA premium tax credits, all controlled by Congress. So um, don't know that they'll change it based on your letter, but you can certainly send your your uh, representatives a, uh, a letter and suggest that uh, they make a modification like this. I don't think it'll get a lot. I don't think this is a burning issue for most of them. So um, it's, we're probably stuck with the way it works until there's another overhaul of the system. Uh, these types of changes tend to be adjusted as part of larger legislative changes. They don't usually tweak something like this because it's not annoying to enough people to justify, um, you know, addressing it directly. But you know, we might, you might want to plant the seed with your Congress people uh, and see uh, if they, when they do bigger legislation, they sneak something into real time determine Irma instead. So I guess I have to give the they do, they don't because they don't, but they could. All right, fair enough. That's what I thought your answer was going to be. Oh, well, good. I'm glad we're in agreement.
We are. All righty. Now we get to the social security uh, I guess the middle meat, of the the, the meat of the sandwich, yeah. <clears throat> which would be social security. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, and he gives a hint. Now, see, he wrote in September of twenty three. So maybe we didn't start this until uh, the fall. I, I no, can't remember. No, we were doing it all year last year. So anybody doing twenty three, I would expect they would. Uh, and you know, I take it back. Some people aren't listening real time. He might have been going through the archives and listening, getting caught up, and he's listening, and he just happened to send the email in 2023, but he hadn't been listening to current shows yet. That's always, oh, I'll give him, you know, there's that possibility. Give him a little. That's okay. All right, this person does, let me see, where is it? Hold on, I clicked the wrong button. I can't find the darn email now, Chris. There it is. Okay, sorry about that, folks. We have Chris (laughs) screwing up at the beginning of the show and me in the middle. Who'd have thought I that just played a little extra show. music is all I did. I didn't lose <laughs> something. <laughs> I lost the email. I'm trying to operate. For those who don't know, I'm in what I call, the, it's the sun room or the mm-hmm. dead animal room. Call whichever one you want. Dead animal room in the sense I've got a couple of uh, deer head and elk head on the wall. But it faces south. The trees have no leaves, <clears throat> so this time well, of year winter. I've got the sun shining through. January is actually the sunniest month uh, of the year in Colorado, and it is very, very sunny out right now, and I am blinded, so it's hard for me to actually see my computer screen, and I'm trying to turn and find some shade, and it's not working. Hmm. So there's my reason. Okay, you might get this. I, when I read it, I didn't look at the answer, um, and I thought a different state. But then when I saw this answer, being a history buff, I was like, ah, yes, that makes sense. Okay. They live in the state, or he lives in the state with the country's oldest inhabited city. Now, I actually know this, and only because I was so shocked when I heard it many, many years ago when I was visiting this state. I didn't really believe it until they gave the whole backstory and everything. So I don't remember exactly the location, but it's in the state of Florida, of all places. It is Florida. It's St. Augustine, Florida. And I can't remember the backstory either because you would think it would have been Virginia where they had that settlement that disappeared. But the key was inhabited city. So uh, St. Augustine. Maybe constantly inhabited or something where a lot of, you know, some of the other places that might have been earlier aren't currently inhabited. But this is the maybe the, the oldest continuously inhabited city maybe the the kicker for this one but um and, and and i don't have my map up not that i would know um i don't have google maps up is what i'm saying is that on the east or west coast st augustine i think it's in the middle and i think it's um in the middle it's not even on the water i don't think so I well, who the hell maybe in I'm the 1400s would settle in the middle of florida well trying to get away from the water i don't know it's got to be on the water, dude. It can't. No. I'll look. I'm looking at Now you're going to have to Google it. Well, no, I'm answering the, dig, reading the question. Reading the question. No, it is on the water. It's on the. <laughs> All right. Uh, I was going to say it had to be on the water. Is it the East the Coast or West Coast? It's on the East Coast. Okay. All righty. So, St. Augustine, Florida, listeners, is where he is from. This is the Social Security meat part of our Irma sandwich. 
I know from your show that a divorced person is eligible for a spousal benefit if the marriage lasted 10 years or longer. Do the 10 years need to be continuous? Or could a couple be married for seven years, get divorced, then later remarry, remain married for three years, and then divorce again? So that will give them a total of 10 years of marriage and therefore access to spousal benefits. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your show and for the contributions you make. I think there is a couple looking to try to do something. Maybe. There's a lot of reasons to get remarried to the same person. Well, they're already planning the divorce. Or they're already planning. Well, we don't know. We don't know the current status, <laughs> if they're in the in-between, or maybe they did this, and they're they're looking in hindsight if, if this uh, opened it up. But So this one we, we have talked about on the show quite a few years ago, actually, as I don't think there was a question regarding this. I think it was one of the shows where I was given some fun facts about Social Security. So the only thing I'm not remembering clearly, and I would have to look up, so I'm going to put a caveat on here, is there, I think there are some special rules about how they measure it, but this, in fact, does work. They re- uh, recognize the fact that some people will get remarried to the same person, and um, there's, if a little more is coming back in my brain as I'm talking about this out loud, but if you were to get remarried in the same year you got divorced, then I think it's uh, continuous and there's no gap, me- you know, there's no measurement of the gap. It's as if the gap didn't happen, if, if my memory is correct. But if there's uh, time, you know, calendar years in between the two marriages, um, there's another way that they, a slightly different way that it's measured. So again, I'd have to go look up exactly the nuances of it to make sure that you wouldn't have to maybe stay married a little bit longer than exactly three years to to clean this up. But uh, yes, they recognize this and they don't make you do it uh, continuously. Um, You could get uh, married a little bit, divorced, remarried, divorced, remarried, divorced, and those they'll look at all those instances. And if the dates are, are in alignment with their rules, they, uh, uh, you can amass the 10 years with separate marriages to the same person. So, yeah, that is uh, now whether this I would make sure you if this is a strategy that you're contemplating, hey, let's get remarried for three years. We didn't realize that uh, we were going to kind of pull the rug out from under one of us for claiming spousal benefits um, or survivor benefits for that matter. Uh, so let's. We have, you know, amicable relationship, et cetera, and, and we're going to remarry so we can get the 10-year clock satisfied to open up the door to some opportunities for Social Security claiming. I'd make sure you look at all the ramifications of being married and not uh, this, this individual uh, reason. But um, maybe this is just a, side, a beneficial side effect they're considering. You know, they realize that they're, they were better off together and, and that sort of thing, and but yeah, I'm not going to, I guess we can guess all day what the reasons behind it are, but uh, to the point of his question, yes, they will glue together in a certain way uh, multiple marriages to the same person to satisfy the 10 years. But before you decide on your next divorce date, make sure to look into the details or reach out to me and I'll dig into it for you, send you what you need on this so you don't miss it again by a month or something like that because they're very picky. If you don't make it to the day of satisfying the 10 years, 
they don't give it to you. It's not a prorated thing. It's an all or nothing thing to the day. Normally, the 10 years is satisfied to the anniversary day of the wedding. That's They look at it not on a monthly basis or you made it to the year when you'd been married 10 years, anything like that. It is to the day you have to prove you made it 10 years. So uh, just that little word of warning. Interesting question, though. Interesting, it is. Mm-hmm. All righty, this next one, the final piece of, of bread, if you will, Irma bread to make our Social Security sandwich, mm-hmm. uh, is probably narrow in scope, but you might be able to expand it to cover more people. Uh, no hint. Uh, he is from Michigan, and I, I've got nothing on Michigan. Well, it's but, the glove uh, or mitten state or whatever, right? Well, yeah, but we had that hint so many times. And so if you're a Michigandier or whatever you guys call yourselves up there, um, we and you're going to send us a hint, we get it. It's a, it's a hand or a mitten, and, and y'all figure out where you are based on the mitten. Um, give us a better state hint than the mitten or glove or, or whatever it is for Michigan. Okay. Oh, also, isn't that the state where you go south? There's parts of it where you go south to go into Canada? Yeah, we had that one yeah, too. So yeah, so don't give us that one either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Michigan, be a little bit more creative yeah. in your state hints in 2024. But don't make them too hard where Chris isn't going to be able to guess them. All righty. Anyways, he says, this question concerns all U.S. Postal Service federal retirees who retire before January 1st, 2025. So you still have time. You got another year. If I retire after that date, January 1st, 2025, I have to take Medicare Part B and Part D. If I retire before that date, I don't. I can take the free Part A only on Medicare. I always hear you talking about Irma. Since I have federal health insurance, they cover everything for me already. That is why a lot of federal retirees don't take Medicare Part B and Part D. Wouldn't it make sense for me not to take Part B and D? Then I will never have to worry about Irma being married or widowed. And I wouldn't have to worry about doing Roth conversions pushing me into Irma brackets. I am from Michigan and awaiting your thoughts. Excellent. We, there's another one we haven't talked about for a while. And it this actually, this issue applies to a lot of people. This isn't that narrow because what the, he's referring to, or he or she is referring to, is um, uh, federal employees, which... Postal Service is kind of, you know, quasi-federal. It's this, you know, kind of somewhat separated entity, if you will. But um, historically, they've qualified for what's called FEHB, the Federal Employees Health Benefits, I think is the acronym. But it's FEHB, definitely. And with FEHB, if you were on FEHB, uh, you you could choose that as your only health insurance coverage. It qualified as a substitute for Medicare. So unlike what he did say, it doesn't cover everything. There's still some out-of-pocket potential on this, and maybe he's been lucky enough to not experience much of that. But but to say it covers everything, that's not quite true, because um, that's why some people do, even on FEHB, consider 
being on Part B in particular, usually not Part D, the prescription drug plan, because FEHB by default has a prescription drug built into it, but the Part B would cover uh, for a lot of folks in combination with their FEHB choice and make it where they'd have little or no out-of-pocket exposure at all. So some people choose that for the predictable nature of it. But for people who do that, who are on FEHB and Part B, if they have enough income or modified adjusted gross income to create IRMA, then the attractiveness of that double coverage really starts to decline because you have to look at it as, you know, is the out-of-pocket maximum on my FEHB insurance going to be lower than what those IRMA-adjusted Medicare Part B premiums are going to be for me? And if that's the case, then I'm losing money. It's a bad economic deal to be to add Part B because the premiums are so high because of IRMA. So for those people, they oftentimes would elect to not go on to Part B, and there was no requirement that they do so. So um, postal employees on FEHB have had that same opportunity. But in 2022, I believe it was, so recently, just last couple of years, they did an overhaul of some of the rules of benefits at the Postal Service, and they created a new, like, within FEHB, um, I think it's Postal Service Health Benefits or something. So it's PS. HB or something. And it's still connected to FEHB because I think it's administered in there, but it has different rules. And one of those rules is it's now going to become a secondary insurance to Medicare so that you are required, like a lot of people with non-government related employer health care benefits that extend into Medicare age, they will demand that they're secondary as the insured and Medicare is primary. So to uh, elect their coverage, you have to simultaneously sign up for Part B and Part D oftentimes. And so my understanding, and I'm not a postal service uh, benefits expert by any means, but my my understanding is that um, they're being uh, kind of transitioned into this new system, but there's some grandfathering in. And that's what this person is referring to, the January 1st of 2025 if you are uh, already on the FEHB, first of all, you will still, and this is, again, my understanding, and I'm because uh, um, I've uh, looked into this for somebody else in the not-too-distant past, um, my understanding is they're going to transition you onto the new PSHB, or whatever the acronym is, regardless. So you don't get to stay on FEHB, but there is this grandfathering in where if you're not on Part B prior to January 1st of 2025, um, and you're retired and you're what's called a a postal service annuitant, which is essentially a retired person getting the pension, they aren't going to force you to get Part B, even though they're going to put you on this new coverage. Essentially, they're saying, well, we'll remain primary insurance and won't require you get Part B unless you want to. You can. They're not barring you from doing it. But his point is exactly what other federal employees face. This person is worried that if if they pay higher than the base Part B premiums because of IRMA, it really makes it kind of a bad deal, and they'd prefer to just have the Postal Service or federal health benefits, and they're maybe contemplating retiring before that January 1st of 2025 deadline. Totally get it. I totally understand, and this should maybe weigh in your your, uh, decision-making. But to, to their point, 
that's exactly the reason what he's describing um, having too high of income, doing Roth conversions, doing all these other things that might trigger Irma. If you don't, or if you're not forced to sign up for Part B and or D, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Now, with the little caveat that if you're on a Medicare Advantage plan where you don't really think that you're signed up for Part D, you still kind of are within that system. So you don't get to avoid it that way. But if you're on one of these alternative coverages that's approved as a full alternative to Medicare where you're not required to sign up for Part B uh, and D, you can avoid IRMA. This is kind of a, I wouldn't call it a hack. It's just recognizing the fact that you've got a choice. Do I want to forego Part B completely and just deal with what I've got from my employer? Or do I want to add the Part B and subject myself to the threat of IRMA? I can avoid IRMA completely, at least under current regulations and, and rules, by not signing up for B. That's the avoiding, you know, that's the avoidance technique is just don't sign up for Part B. Now, no, if you don't do that and down the road you change your mind and you try to add it, you're going to be faced with that penalty that we all are. If you add it later when you could have added it before, um, you're going to pay 10% higher premiums for each year you delayed when you should have been on Part B, and those, that penalty then, that higher premium, is for the rest of your life. It's not a one-time event. So, for instance, if you wait a year past 65 and you didn't have a waiver because you were employed and, and that sort of thing, but, for instance, on FEHB, you don't get a, a waiver. Uh, if you're on FEHB and you go for a while retired and you go from like 65 to 70 and then you're like, you know, I think it is a good idea for me to add Part B. You do that, you're going to pay 50% more premiums every year for the rest of your life because they're saying, well, you, you know, you could have added it back when you were 65. You chose not to. You're adding it now at 70 and we're maybe suspicious that you're adding it now because you've got health concerns. And so the disadvantage of doing so is we're going to charge you. 10% per year, so five years, 50% higher premiums for the rest of your life. So be aware of that. If you if you make this election to not go on it, I would say make sure it's truly what you want to do in the long term, uh, because if you voluntarily try to add it down the road, that's a problem. Now, if they decide to transition people, which they always could, right? This was a law change uh, back a couple of years ago. If they decide to change it again and move re existing retirees or annuitants uh, uh, you know, and force them to go to Part B, they can't then force you and then say, well, you got to pay the penalty because we're now, you know, no, that's, I'm sure they wouldn't do that. But if it's a voluntary action, yeah, you're going to be faced with that 10% penalty. So just, just be aware of that if you are playing this strategy, uh, that if you change your mind and add it later, you could face that increased premium as well. So... Um, that kind of spun off in a little side direction there, but well, tangent. You're known for doing that, going down these rabbit holes and rambling on and on and on. But people are used to you doing that, Chris. Oh, I appreciate them. All right, all right. This this might be an impossibility, folks. Uh -oh. But as Chris talks and rambles on and on and on like he normally does, he is not pithy like I am. I'm actually looking and doing things. Uh -oh. I have seven emails I intend to get through. Chris is going to limit me to five minutes per email max. So get your little smartphone out and set your timer oh when gosh. I start reading a question. And you got to shut my hiney up at five minutes. So I'm going to, but if we, I'm going to play the little do, buzzer sound when we hit five minutes. All right. If we do one every five minutes, 
We could, and this would be a record we, show because we have never done be 10, 10 questions. It would be 10. I don't think we ever hit 10. No, not even close. So don't forget, if I can get through one wicked fast, you give me that time. You don't no, you I'm let not me run over. That. No, no, that's not how that works. What do you mean it doesn't know how that works? No. All right, we're wasting too much time trying okay. to set the rules. All right. So I'm going to try to get through seven more emails. The first one is going to be the new question of the week. But before I get to the new question of the week, I'm going to get to the new PSA of the week. I just thought this was very nice of the woman to send this. I'm going to read it to everybody. Okay, it begins, hi, Jim and Chris. I understand Jim's recent concern about the CBS quote-unquote article on insurance for seniors. She's referencing folks this week's EDU show, which we will continue next week. Um, where I just went off on a tangent that CBS was masquerading what essentially was a money-making advertisement to them as a legitimate news report. She continues, I have seen similar posts in September on Apple News and was also struck that it was a thinly veiled moneymaker, not true journalism. So I sent CBS an email to that effect. And I'm happy to see that you, too, brought up the issue to your listeners' attention. I am a volunteer Medicare counselor through the county program under the auspices under the direction of our Department of Senior Services and the state SHIP program. We get many of our training materials from Medicare Rights Center, Mm -hmm. which you also mention, Mm -hmm. as well as directly from the Center for Medicare Services. And I am distressed about the lack of transparency and comprehensiveness of the info. She's referencing the CBS article. She did want me to share with you. So this is a woman, Chris, who teaches under SHIP, which we mentioned in our answer, Oh, my rant, not answer. Also, uh, she uses the Medicare Rights Center, which we encourage people to use. But then she goes on to the 65 Incorporated. Mm -hmm. 65 Incorporated was also put on our uh, little rant. So Mm -hmm. listen to last week's EDU show. You'll see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And one of the women who founded it is Diane Amadal. So she apparently wrote a book. So this listener wanted me to encourage you guys out there to look for the book called Medicare and You. Now, this is coming from a Medicare uh, SHIP counselor, so she knows what she's talking about. Diane O-M-D-A-H-L is her name, Medicare and You. She says, it's worth the read. I know you mentioned her counseling service that will provide an option for those who can afford it. And then she summarized it and ended with, you are indeed correct that SHIP counselors will not tell people what insurance policy to choose, but we do try to present the pros and cons of different choices in light of their situation. So it kind of encapsulates much of what we talked about on the EDU show. So I wanted to share that with everyone and thank this listener for sending it. Okay. Great. Next one, Jim and Chris, my state hint. I am home to the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of carousel horses at a historic carousel museum. And don't take long. I got five minutes here. So 
what state has the uh, largest collection of carousel horses and a historic carousel museum? Iowa. Why the hell did you say Iowa? I would, that's a good one, though. I actually probably would have chose Iowa over this one. Oregon. Oh. I, I would have chose Oregon. Oh, Iowa well, I'm thinking uh, like county fair county and they like the, to keep Right, in, stuff, in yeah. the Corn Belt. Yeah. So, yeah, that was good. I, I like Iowa, but apparently Oregon. Mm-hmm. I'm a longtime listener and big fan of your show. I have some quick questions about a Roth conversion. Good, because we're going to give quick answers. In 2023, I made a $50,000 Roth conversion as part of a plan to reduce my future RMDs. But I am a self-employed person, and I'm not sure or wasn't sure of my tax bill that I would have during the year. So I neglected to file my quarterly taxes. But I heard you mention on a podcast that payment of taxes from a Roth conversion directly to the IRS would show up as being received equally throughout the year and thus avoid some or maybe all of the underpayment penalties and interest. So I converted some of my Roth. And one payment went directly to the IRS and to my state in taxes. The rest went into my Roth. My questions. Would it have been better for me to pay the taxes from non-qualified and keep my cash inside the Roth? Well, no, listener. If your intent was to take advantage of this unique little fact that if you send money directly to the IRS from an IRA... They consider it received equally throughout the year and can help you avoid underpayment penalties. You mentioned that that's why you did it. So if you sent it from uh, the non-qualified money you have, say, at a bank, it wouldn't have accomplished your task. Now, if your task was to maximize the money inside your Roth and not have to send payments to the IRS to make up or cover for an underpayment penalty, then yes, you might have wanted to use money in a bank account to pay the taxes. But to me, it would defeat the purpose of what he said he did it for. Do you agree or disagree? I totally agree. Okay. Question two, could I have accomplished the same thing if I sent a direct payment to the IRS from my non-qualified bank account? You want to handle that one? That would be no. No. Perfect. (laughs) Well, yes, I'll handle it, but the answer is (laughs) no. The only way to do it, listeners, is from an IRA. Question three. Do you know if states will treat the payments the same way as having been received equally throughout the year? I'm going to say I don't know, and I bet it has to depends on your state. But I don't know offhand if there's a unified rule where all 50 states also will treat it that way. I've only known it as the IRS. What says you? I I, I agree. I don't know the, every individual state how they apply this, so that might not work for the state withholdings or estimated tax payments. Okay, perfect. How am I doing on time? Good so far. Both of those, you stayed under your five minutes. So keep on a roll. Even with the... Um... Mm-hmm. Q&A stuff, huh? Yeah. And we, we're five in now, though, right? That makes five. five. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's go to this one. 
No hint, but they are from Illinois. Uh, and they sent this to us uh, September 23, but no hint. My wife and I have four IRA accounts at four different institutions. I have one of them. She has three of them. In 2024, we will both be 73 and subject to required minimum distributions. So when it comes to our RMDs, can we satisfy our RMDs for all four IRAs, but withdraw it just from my one IRA? Uh, do we still have that sound effect, get smart, missed it by that much? Um, no. No. You don't have to look for it. We well, I have a big we... board of like, I do have like 15 on here. but that For those be... who don't remember get smart, we used to have that sound effect. Maxwell yeah. Smart would often say, missed it by that much. And he'd hold his thumb yeah. and forefinger together yeah. really, really close. Yep. It's not going to work, listener. The right. I in IRA stands for individual. So your IRA, you have one, your wife has three. Your IRA has to take care of your RMD. Your wife, on the other hand, she has three. She can figure out her RMD from all three separately, add them together, and take them from one of her IRAs. So IRAs can be aggregated for purposes of RMDs, but only based on individual ownership. And I know you think we're married, we file a joint tax return. What the heck does it matter? I agree, but that's not the way the government looks at it. So they are going to make your wife take hers, you take yours, even though it might feed to a joint tax return. So close, but no cigar. Your wife can do it from one of her IRAs. You must take your own. Anything you want to add to that? No, that was a you know, it was kind of a wishful thinking. It'd be nice if it worked that way, but no, particularly if there's a difference in age between the two of them. You know, there can be an advantage to attempting to drain the older persons a little faster sometimes in their looking at their tax projections, but it doesn't work that way. The big I at the beginning there is individual. You have to do these individual calculations and required distributions. But aggregation among other IRAs, that's a, a good point. A lot of people do that. Okay, I think we're nailing the time. I'm going to have, so far, which is good. Mm-hmm. That, was, that one was only three minutes, shockingly enough. Shockingly, I'm doing well, doing well. Um, the, the questions are getting progressively more complex, Uh-oh. so <laughs> okay. I need that extra time. All right. Um, I love this guy's hints. I, they, they're good. I, it, he gave three. If you can nail it on the first one, I will be totally impressed. If you can nail it on the second one, I'd be impressed. I screwed it up on the third one. I chose a different state. Hmm. So see if you can guess his state, folks. A 13-year-old boy designed the state flag. Don't take long to think this through. Uh, No, do you don't? Nevada. No. The name of our state means the great land. Uh, Nebraska? No. Our state has three million lakes. Minnesota? That's what I said! Alaska. Oh, three million. Yeah, the three Minnesota million is the land of ten thousand lakes. So <laughs> right, that's yeah. 
I saw lakes and I just thought Minnesota. Yeah, I know. Those and were good hints because they were kind of tricky. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. you, you got me. I did the same thing. I said Minnesota. And then he didn't give the answer. So I had to Google the land, the great land state, and it's Alaska. Huh, cool. um, but I said Minnesota. All right. Here's his question, folks. I'm 47. And this one, Chris, I want you to opine in, too. It's, okay. it's more of a financial planning question, folks, and it's more of the art of financial planning. In other words, there's not going to be a set answer for these people. But we have had people... Uh, and you never mentioned names, Chris, but several of our current clients, and I know you're going to remember them when I read this question, are in his situation, sadly, I put. And it's a tough situation. I am 47 years old and my wife is 40. Both of us work for our state. We have a 12-year-old son. Although we have 401ks, our state does not participate in the Social Security program. We also do not have any state pension. Based on our lifestyle and income, we can save up to 3000 a month for other purposes after saving our 401k contributions. What kind of investments would you recommend for us since we are never going to have any type of secure income after we retire? I have been searching for an answer to this question for years, but have not found one. Your response would help others in a similar situation. As a little digression, and this answer will go more than five minutes, but keep me short, Chris. We have a few people in this situation because a police department in Colorado, actually a county in Colorado, I won't mention which one, opted out of the Social Security system and several police officers who worked for a city in there county uh, came to us with with nice size retirement accounts, but no secure income at all. No social security, no pension. And spouses who didn't have any either. And it is difficult to cover their minimum dignity floor. Chris and I believe passionately the foundation of the fun number approach to retirement planning what we call the secure retirement income process, is to take care of your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care expenses, otherwise known as the minimum dignity floor, or MDF, with lifetime guaranteed secure income. Income that cannot change, it's predetermined and known. Income that can never go down. If it moves, it only goes up. And income that is backed by a deep-pocketed third party, not your assets. So if you outlive your money and have none, this income continues and will cover the expenses that every human needs right up to the minute they die. Food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. That's our philosophy, and that is my driving aim of how I approach retirement. This gentleman and his wife don't have it, but they have $3,000 a month to invest. Mm -hmm. I would encourage you, first of all, for a variety of reasons, to watch out for the hucksters who are going to try to get you to throw that money into an index universal life insurance policy, giving them one hell of a beautiful commission and giving you a bunch of illustrations that's going to show that you're going to have all this tax-free money in retirement. I would be very careful on that. I don't believe in that for a minute, and I don't have enough time on this podcast to get into why. 
But if you want to go that route and you've met people who encourage you to go that route, be very, very careful. Mm -hmm. That's all I'll say there. If you need to generate guaranteed lifetime secure income and you do, you really have two ways of doing it. You can buy a deferred income annuity. You need more lifetime secure income. You don't have any. So you could direct that $3,000 a month into a deferred income annuity, DIA for short, D-I-A. It would be a non-qualified because it's not inside a retirement account. You would just direct that $3,000 every month into a deferred income annuity with a highly rated A-plus-plus rated carrier. Don't, don't buy it from Joe's used insurance. Don't buy it from a, a private equity-owned Bermuda-based insurance company. I hate those companies for lifetime streams of income, but a well-regarded, highly rated insurance company. And you're kind of spreading risk out because each month <clears throat> will purchase a different amount of lifetime secure income. And when you do this, the insurance companies will actually send you a monthly, quarterly, or annual summary of each purchase and how much income that's going to give you at whatever stated age you told them you were going to turn it on. Now, you're under no obligation to turn it on that age. Many insurance companies will allow you to turn it on sooner or later. But they have to use a stated age to show you how much income they will guarantee you on each purchase. That way, you and your wife, it, it would vary in the amount of income you get because the sooner you buy it, the more income you'll get in the future. Each subsequent purchase would give you a little bit less income each month. Seriously, it does because you're a month older and a month older and the insurance company has less time to keep those dollars working in the deferral phase. So you will get to see how much income you are buying. You'll also be able to take advantage of interest rate fluctuations. In months where interest rates are higher than the previous month, you may actually get more money than the previous month. And in months or years where interest rates are lower, you might get less money. So it kind of spreads the risk out. It's going to give you a guaranteed stated amount of income. You cannot outlive it. And you could, if you so desire, add a stated inflationary increase to it. In other words, they'll tell you how much you're going to get and how much of a cost of living you'll get added to it. That all is all going to come as you open it, as you work with an insurance agent and open the deferred income annuity. And then fund it religiously every month. You're under no obligation to fund it, but you have $3,000 a month, fund it religiously. And this will form a pool of guaranteed lifetime income. Or, because the big negative to that, Chris, is what? They, are they buying a noun or a verb with that type of annuity? They're buying a verb. It's already annuitized. So as that money goes in, it's going to be income in the future. It is not available as a lump sum. So you can also buy another annuity. It most likely would be a fixed indexed annuity or a variable annuity. Neither of those two annuities I'm fans of much anymore for a variety of reasons that I can't get into on this answer. But you could buy one of those annuities where you are truly buying a noun. You're not buying a verb. The money is not lost forever. 
Those annuities, though, will come with what is called a living benefit or an income rider, where they will define to you how much income you will receive in the future. But they don't give it to you in dollars. They're going to give it to you as a calculation that depending on how long you keep that annuity open and how much money grows inside that annuity, they will guarantee you a certain percentage of the account value as a payout. Not a huge fan of them and not certain it's going to work in your case because most of those annuities require a lump sum purchase and don't allow continued monthly contributions like most deferred income annuities allow. Most of those annuities will allow only a one-time purchase. Not all of them. There are many, but not all of them. That will allow continued purchases, either for life or for a stated period. But those annuities are really looking more for a lump sum. Can't say I'm a huge fan of them. Maybe during June when we have National Annuity Awareness Month, I'll dive deeper into why. But the third option, and don't overlook it, listener, and I think the a simple answer is staring you and your wife in the face and you never noticed it. Just put that money aside in an investment. You don't give me your, well, you do give me your age. You're 47 and 40. You got a while to work. You can have a growth level of risk with these dollars. Buy low-cost, passively managed index funds, whether you want to get them at Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab or wherever. I don't care. Just get broad market index funds. If you're a little bit nervous, make it a 90-10, 80-20, 70-30, which would be around an aggressive to moderately aggressive allocation. At your ages, you certainly have the risk capacity for retirement dollars, to take that much risk. And you should view 2022, which was a huge down year, as a buying opportunity. 3000 a month going in would have been wonderful. And during the rebound last year, each month would have purchased at a lower price than the next month. And you're buying more and more shares of these investments. And let those investment accounts just grow. And by buying them through an ETF, you're not going to get much taxes as far as interest and dividends. Don't do it through mutual funds. Mutual funds will pay out a lot of interest and dividends for because of the way they're structured. But ETFs won't. And if you buy passive ones, tracking indexes, you'll get some dividends, yes, because the indexes will have a dividend yield of about 1.5% to maybe 2%. And that gets reinvested and you will be taxed on that. But everything else will grow as a capital gain. Then in the future, you can buy an annuity with it. Of course, that will mean having to realize at that point a fairly big capital gain. I concede uh, in order to buy the income annuity, but it will allow you to at least do that. One option you could also consider, start a business and create a retirement account, a legitimate business. You have to have a legit business. But if you have a passion, if you have something you want to do, you could start a business. And if you have money from that business, you have to have money from it. You could direct those dollars into a 401k at your business and grow those dollars. 
The point is, in the third option, what you're trying to do is just grow a pool of assets and then dedicate those assets, not for a safe withdrawal rate, not for a big pool of money to go spend on on worthless things in your 60s or 70s when you retire, but to dedicate specifically to buy a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. So the first option I gave you is puts all the risk on the insurance company and gives you the closest representation of the Social Security you do not have. The second one does put the risk on the insurance company because they will give you a guaranteed formula on figuring out what your income will be. But many of those types of annuities will not allow monthly contributions for the rest of your life. Most will want a lump sum, so it may not work. The riders are quite expensive, and those annuities carry a lot of fees that the DIA annuities do not. So I'm not a huge fan of number two, but it could work. And the advantage to number two is it's not annuitized. You're buying a noun. So in the future, when you get into your 60s or 70s and you and your wife are going to retire, you might not need those dollars anymore for one reason or another. You got a massive inheritance, the state of Alaska changed, and you got a great pension or whatever. Those annuities are not annuitized. You can leave with whatever money is in them. But a DIA annuity, when you buy a deferred income annuity, you get income, you don't get your money. So that's the difference between the two. And the third option, you're just creating a pool of money that you're going to dedicate to buying a single premium immediate annuity in the future when you retire. Long answer, but that was a tough one to get through in five minutes. Yeah, I'm glad you offered up all those options. I'll add just a couple quick things. One, people underestimate the value of Social Security. For most couples, if we were to look at the value of that as what would I need in hand as a lump sum to kind of somewhat replicate what Social Security provides, easily for a lot of folks, well in excess of a million dollars. So that's where a lot of people that are in this particular circumstance, uh, maybe they're not 40-something, they're, they're at retirement age, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, look, I have like a million too but they don't have social security. They're thinking, oh, that sounds pretty good, a million too. Well, they, you know, that, that missing social security is worth over a million bucks to them as well. Uh, a retirement with a million too overall resources versus 2.2 million are very drastically different uh, retirement experiences. I'll just let you know that. So don't underestimate the value of social security. So if you're in one of these I'm encouraging these folks, don't frivolously treat that 3000 a month. You need to pile up a big pile of money before you retire because you're trying to overcome the missing Social Security piece. Um, and then secondly, uh, Jim, you mentioned you know piling up the money in just a regular brokerage account over time, but then you might have some, some gain issues when you go to buy an annuity. Remember, they have a 401k as well. They could actually maybe generate the income using that money. And it would still then be deferred and pay out to them over time. Oh, then, I like and that. And the non-qual money they're going to pile up with this 3000 a month, they could treat, they wouldn't have to 
cash it all out in one giant lump sum and have all those capital gains. They'd have a lot more uh, real-time management opportunities. Excellent. I was testing Chris, folks. Uh, folks, I was <laughs> testing Chris on that to see if you pick up on it because I actually knew that. Um, and good. You passed Chris. Very Thank good. You. Well, thank you. It, it, it seems like I totally missed that, but that's how good of an actor I am. Yeah. The downside is we just spent 17 minutes on that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. One more then. This one's okay. going to be quick and okay. we'll, we'll wrap up. So we're not going to get 10, but we got eight. That's pretty damn good. Yeah. All right. This one comes back to that, though. I do like that listener better. You'll end up probably annuitizing the 401k. And the reason I like that better, it's going to give you a massive pool of tax diversification. So many people freak out. I can't save in a a taxable brokerage account. I got to pay taxes on it. What the hell? You got to pay taxes in a 401k anyways. And that's going to be taxable as income. You got a community property state option there in Alaska. I don't want one of you guys to die, but if one of you guys die, the surviving spouse will inherit that account 100% tax-free. It'll get a step-up in basis. So that brokerage account with low-cost ETFs, passively managed, you're going to pay 10, 15 BIPs tops in management fee to the ETFs. You can easily diversify it with two, three, four ETFs. It can be um, just steadily invested on a regular basis. You don't even have to get into rebalancing and generating cap gains and everything. Don't freak out on that. Just keep saving in those types of accounts. You might have to rebalance to reflect your risk tolerance in the future, but it doesn't have to be done necessarily. And then you can target your rebalances with the uh, low gain, higher basis options. So there's ways to manage your tax risk during the accumulation phase, but it's all cap gain, which is tax at lower rates than anything coming from a 401k and living in a community property state sadly but if one of you pass away before the other the surviving spouse gets a hundred percent wipeout of that deferred cap gain so don't underlook that that's a great point chris made all right last question uh this one is a michigander who gives no hint which is good because there's going to be a mitten answer anyways hi jim and chris i'm a michigander and love the show I was listening to your episode about the issues of naming a trust as beneficiary of an IRA. Here's my question. Does Schwab, and I have no idea, you're going to have to get a hold of your own custodian. So I'm not answering Schwab directly. I'm going to answer for generic custodian. Does Schwab allow you to name a subtrust of your master trust directly on your IRA beneficiary form? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yes, they're going to allow you to do that. I would be shocked. I just turned to Schwab a few months ago. TD allowed us to do that. I've never heard of a custodian not doing that unless the custodian has a rule. They are not going to allow trust as a beneficiary. Some custodians have that rule. Right. I highly right. doubt Schwab, the one of the largest custodians and huge in the registered investment advisory market, is going to have a rule that says you can't name a subtrust. So I'm going to go out on a limb listener and say, no, Schwab will allow it. But here's, look, folks, what he's asking. He has a master trust. He goes on to say, let's say I have three children and they are beneficiaries of my master trust. And each of them had a corresponding subtrust within the master trust. If I name those subtrusts on my IRA, would this allow my children to open three beneficiary IRAs each with their own distribution rules based on the beneficiaries of each subtrust. 
I'm asking because otherwise I feel if you just name a master trust as the beneficiary, that could cause issues if the master trust references a charity or mm-hmm. other non-designated beneficiaries. Exactly. So he is correct. The private letter ruling that allowed this was actually applied for by a member of the Ed Slot program. So what he did, what this you a master trust is just the main trust, folks. And most people create a trust, they name their three kids as beneficiaries, and then they name that master trust as beneficiary of their IRA. If you did that prior to Secure Act, post-Secure, it's almost a moot point because each kid's got 10 years, unless there's an exemption for one of the children for a variety of different reasons. Most are going to have to close it within 10 years, so it's kind of a moot point, but not totally. So this Ed Slot advisor said, hey, what if the master trust just said upon the death of the owner of the IRA, the master trust immediately creates three mini trusts, one for each child. And what if we actually named the mini trusts right in the trust master trust document and then named each mini trust, even though it doesn't exist right now, it doesn't get created until the guy dies. But we went ahead and named each mini trust as a third owner or third beneficiary on the IRA. Would the IRS allow us Pre-secure two, when you could stretch over your life expectancy, would they allow each child to therefore create their own inherited IRA with the trust as beneficiary, but being stretched out over their own respective life expectancy? This could be very important for families who have, a, say, a 14-year-old, a 24-year-old, and a 30-year-old. They kind of spread their kids out. If you had just one master trust, the pre-secure, the 14-year-old would have to, quote-unquote, stretch under the remaining life expectancy of the 30-year-old, which is a lot shorter. So he applied for a private letter ruling. The IRS said, yes, you could do that. And boom, born was this idea of sub-trusts being created within the master trust and naming the sub-trusts on the IRA beneficiary form. That's been around for years. The problem is, post-secure listener, I don't know what you're trying to achieve. Each child's going to have to close it in 10 years. But I still like the master trust, sub-trust idea. Mm-hmm. Even though they're all going to have to close it within 10 years, you don't want your three kids having one trust because they're going to bitch and moan to each other. Right. One's going to want it managed cleaner. this way. Yeah, the other way. Yeah. Right. They're going to want to manage the other way. One wants to buy this. The other wants to buy that. It's a nightmare. Yeah. They're kids. They love each other, but they're going to argue. Allow them to break it into their own trust. You want that trust for protection and control, I'm guessing. That's why you're naming a trust as beneficiary of an IRA. There should be no other reason except protection and control of those dollars. Other than that, I hate trusts as beneficiaries of IRAs. But if you need that that protection and control, let each kid have their own trust. Don't just create a master trust. Create subtrusts inside. The subtrusts get created immediately at your death and put the name of the subtrusts on the beneficiary form, not the master. Perfect. Perfect. So close, but we didn't get to 10. I think that's our record, though. We did, we did eight. 
because we had that flurry. We had like that lightning round in the middle. So <laughs> very nice. So uh, yeah, if you want to, we're going to, at this rate, we're going to start going through questions much faster. So if you want to submit your own question before we run out, um, just send those questions directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. Put in the subject line that it's a question for the show. And uh, particularly when we're trying to do the lightning round, the more uh, concise the question and direct uh, single topic uh, style question you can make it, the greater the chance uh, he'll pluck it out for one of these. uh, If if we're going to do this regularly, I don't know if this was just for today, but uh, to celebrate the new year, we wanted to get in eight. Uh, We set the bar kind of high now is the problem. But uh, if you want to be considered, just send in your own email. And Jim... We got to bolt to other obligations, but you have a good day and anything you want to say in passing? No, but I, I say we make it a goal to do a 10 question show soon rather than later. Okay. Maybe. We can try. I we'll mean, have to be picky with the questions. With the right we questions, have we could to be do it. because some some are easier than others. But I'm just thinking out loud. It just jumped on me. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should say, "Hey, today we're going to do a few questions, but it's the deeper dive questions." And then, oh, today I've amassed. You know, we've got eight, nine, ten uh, quickies, and we do mm-hmm. them all on a quickie show. That might yeah. be a little more interesting. Maybe we'll consider doing that. Yeah, mix it up. That'd be nice. Okay. So, okay. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll be back with everybody else next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.